You're visiting the mom next door and our stories of faith. I'm glad you dropped by for a visit. Please stay a while and hear what the Lord has done in the lives of moms just like you and me. So today, this is a special treat, even for me, because I have my friend Thelma here, who is kind of famous in our local mom community. She is requested often to come and speak to moms groups because she has so much wisdom and um, a really solid biblical foundation that on so many subjects, we all just say, well, you should talk to Thelma about that. Let's go ask her or, hey, maybe we could get Thelma to come talk. So honestly, today, though I may have thought in my mind I was going to have certain subjects for her to go on, I really think that I'm just going to hand the microphone over to Thelma and she is just going to treat us all to the wisdom that she's stored up through the years. So Thelma, why don't you just start by introducing yourself? Well, I'm Thelma English, and I have been married for 43 years to the same guy, uh, and we have two children, two living children who are 33 and 40. We lost five unborns. Uh, one, my first miscarriage was at five months, and that was the most traumatic because we had already had a baby shower. Uh, the others were the most common type, like right over 12 weeks, and so that wasn't much. But we got married back in the old days when nobody knew what to do as far as dating, what to do as far as courting. I didn't get saved until I was almost 15, and I was quite a brat. I was a liar. I was an exaggerator. I had an extreme problem with exaggerating. So if my brother hit me, I would roll on the floor crying and screaming and exaggerate. It was just a terrible thing. And I was a liar. I was a very good liar. I lied to my mom all the time. Actually, later in life when she got dementia, I ended up using those skills again. And I needed to lie occasionally to my mom after her dementia. But when I got saved at 14, my entire life changed. I had been looking forward to trying all types of sinful things. I'd been looking forward to trying uh, sexual intimacy outside of marriage. I was looking forward to trying some type of drugs or something. I was looking forward to trying to smoke or drink alcohol. I was looking forward to all of those sins and getting really excited about those. And then I got saved. And the the ultimate push behind my getting saved was the Holy Spirit convicting me on my relationship with my mother, which was basically a void relationship. My mother had raised four of us all alone by herself. My dad was never present in my life. And so I kind of uh, glor glorified him in my thoughts and thought he must have been awesome and that my mother was, of course, wicked and horrible. When I got saved, the Lord used that guilt to change me from the inside out. Of course, that rebirth. And I did change. I went from wearing the shortest skirts in school and being called into the office to tell me that my skirts were too short. Of course, no one could wear pants in those days. It was all dresses. And then after I got saved, I, on a little bit of a rebound effect perhaps, I started making my clothing and I started making long jumpers and long skirts and I wore turtlenecks and I wore long sleeves and I completely changed the way that I dressed and the way that I talked. I had to, of course, switch out all my friends and get new friends. I became part of a Bible study in school where we'd meet in the library in a soundproof room and, and pray and start the day with prayer. I started going to a, 
a Pentecostal church in Portland called Bible Temple. I didn't even know what Pentecostal was. And when they would sing and dance on the way down the aisle to give the offering, I was way out of my comfort zone. But I attended that church for about three years. And I think it was good for me that I have sampled quite a few different denominations now so that I realize God allows us to have all types of flavors of worship that he's okay with. Uh, But I did get to meet Edie Iverson, Pastor Dick Iverson's wife, and she changed the course of my life. Uh, If you attended that church, you had to go to the Young Women's Bible Study uh, Sunday school class, or you would kind of be ostracized by all of the other youth in the congregation. There was something wrong with you if you didn't attend, if you were a girl and did not attend Edie Iverson's uh, Sunday school class. And that's where I learned the things that the Bible doesn't even talk about. It was Edie Iverson who said, never be alone in a uh, in a car with a young man. And if you are alone in a car with a young man, you make sure your Bible is sitting right there between us, between (laughs) you. And it it sounds like, uh, it it sounds kind of silly, but it works. It really does work. And Edie had all of these ideas that I, I then incorporated into my life. About 20 years ago, I wrote her a letter. She was still alive and just told her how she changed the entire course of my life and how much that meant to me. Because my own mother, bless her heart, I love my mom, but my own mother basically was just looking forward to me getting a boyfriend and getting married so that then she wouldn't have to she wouldn't have to protect me and take care of me anymore. And so my mom wasn't real useful as far as practical advice, and Edie Iverson was. So I got saved, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I was to the point where I would obey my mom even when I knew she was wrong. I would obey her. I would do exact, I would do what she said. And for my senior portrait, I asked my mother, what would you like me to wear, and how would you like me to fix my hair? You tell me. You decide, because I think we're going to have different ideas. And she bought me this beautiful blue, pale blue turtleneck. I have the photos, you know, from my senior photos. And then she bought me a little silver cross with a little dove on it. And then she had me wear my hair straight back, which I just hated because I have widow's peak. And I just thought I looked like an old lady. I always wore it kind of hanging across my face. But I did my hair. I did my clothes, exactly what my mom wanted. And the after effect is that now, 43 years later, I'm not embarrassed at my senior photos. They're beautiful. I probably look the best that I ever did when I was uh, 18. And so, a 17. And so that was kind of funny, but that pleased my mom so much. And that meant the world to her. It was a huge building block in our relationship to repairing our relationship, just huge. That I just Mm -hmm. said, you tell me what to do and I will do that to please you. Mm -hmm. And so then I started growing incredibly close to my grandma Thelma. I had a grandma, I'm named after her, and my grandma Thelma is the epitome of the best hostess, the best grandmother. They would discover if we had no food in the house. Again, my mom raised four children alone. And so there were, we often had to save the milk for the baby. And we drank, we used uh, water on our cereal. And my grandma would find out that there was no food in the house and they would go to the store and bring us all the special things, orange juice and things like that, that we never bought. And so I got very close to my grandma Thelma. And every couple of years, she would come pick one of us up and take us out and we'd come back with a new coat, with a new outfit and a haircut Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, ice cream after lunch and that type thing. And so I do try, I do try to become my grandma Thelma. In fact, when I did become a grandma, when I was 45, I just started weeping. 
when my brother said, oh, you're going to be Grandma Thelma. And it just made me cry because I thought, I can't be her. I can't be her. I can't live up to that. And that's my goal as I try to live up to that. And so that's my, that's my goal in life. So I had this incredible grandma who taught me how to uh, nurture. She taught me how to entertain. She taught me how to make cinnamon rolls. I'm still famous for my cinnamon rolls. She taught me how to make a bread. She taught me how to bake pies. All the things that my mother could not because my mother was always working one and a half jobs just to keep food on the table and to keep us, uh, to keep us in school and sheltered and all of that. So uh, when I was 18... I wanted to go out and get a job, and I had graduated from high school almost a year early. I worked very hard in high school to graduate early and just get out of there. I wanted to go to work and be able to earn some money. If we earned money at home, any money I earned, I was a maid for a while or be picking various things like that, we needed to turn over to my mom because she just needed the money. So I was very excited about going out and getting a job and earning money for myself. And I, on my 18th birthday, I applied for JCPenney at Washington Square. They were just getting ready to open up and they wanted me to come the very next day. And I had to wait a day or two days. I think I had to wait from Friday to Monday and I had no car. My older brother went out and bought me a car and I learned how to drive a stick shift the night before I drove to Washington Square going up Murray Road, which is just all hills there in Beaverton. And so my brother got me a car and I moved out and it broke my mom's heart. I was eight. In fact, she went to work that night and she blockaded my bedroom door and she said, you can't move out. I need you. And I had been home for almost eight months taking care of my siblings. And I felt like I was never going to be able to move Mm -hmm. if I didn't just leave. And I moved. I crawled out my bedroom window and took my clothes with me and moved out. My paycheck was $80 a week. That's what I cleared. And my rent was $80 a month. I got a studio apartment that was a garage converted to a studio. And that that did break my mom's heart. I look back at that and I think, is that a regret or is that what I had to do? And I do still believe, I'm almost 63, I do still believe that I had to do that. I don't believe that my mom could ever have let go of me. I think her expectation, she was so desperate, I think she really thought I would just stay at home and take care of the kids. And I I moved out. So just before I got married, I moved back home for the last six or eight weeks and mended that relationship, repaired that. And she did feel, she had kind of forgotten about it at that point. I never forgot and I still have guilt, but my mom, she was the type who forgave instantly. And I'm learning how to do that. But my mom forgave instantly. She just forgot it. It wasn't even there anymore. And she didn't even care. She was just thrilled for me that I was getting married. So my friend told me the other day, she said, you know, there are two, the two most important decisions that you will ever make. And one is, do you know Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. Do you know him? Do you mm-hmm. know him? And the second is who you marry. Yeah. Who are you going to marry? And that will change the course of your life. My mother did not want to go to college, but my grandmother, my grandma Thelma, graduated college in 1925, and she was determined that all four of her daughters would also graduate from college. This is very unusual in the early 50s, and my mom did not want to go to college. They made her go down to Oregon State, and they bought her a car, gave her a bank account, started her at Oregon State. She stayed two years. She married her dance instructor who was 12 years older than she was, and told her he was a Christian. She met his family. He had nine brothers and sisters. Not one of them ever said, Jane, did has Phil told you that he has been married before and has children? No one said that. They all presumed that he would have told her. 
So my mom married my dad thinking she was his first wife. She was his third woman, his second wife, and he already had two children, one by each of the women. And he had forced both of them to give their children up for adoption. And so I did have two half-brothers, about 17 years older than I am, that I met later in life. I really felt like in my family there was no pride in our family. It was like a litter of kittens. Uh, and then he just kept going from person to person. He married her best friend before their divorce decree was final. And she was my mom was pregnant when she was getting divorced. And then she knows of six or seven marriages since then. We kind of lost track of all the marriages. But back in the old days, you didn't just sleep with them. You married them and then you left them. That was what my dad did. Probably made salved his conscience a little bit. And so I didn't have a, a dad, but I did idolize him and thought he was probably awesome and that my mother had done a terrible thing leaving him. And just before I got saved, my grandma Thelma had sat me down and told me the real story of my dad. She told me of the day we left. She told me and my mom packing all of us into the car, packing all of our clothes. That was all she could get and two little rocking chairs. It's the one possession that I have. And getting in the car and my dad woke up from his drunken stupor and threw bricks through the window as we were leaving. And we went to my grandparents and my mom and my grand grandmother prevented my grandfather from going back to shoot my dad because he was just going to go kill him. My mom wow. was all bruised and had been beaten, you know, repeatedly, that wow. type of thing. And yeah. he had multiple other women. It was just doomed from the very beginning. Yeah. And that was the beginning of my repentance, realizing that my mom was really the heroine and my dad was the villain in my life story. Wow. Which, yeah. That's a life story. Oh, it is. It's <laughs> incredible to think I thought my mother was just trying to ruin my life. And that is so typical with teenagers. You're trying to ruin my life. You just don't want me to be happy because you're old, you know, and <laughs> I'm young. And then to have my grandma, whom I respected, tell me the truth about my dad. And that was kind of the final nail in the coffin of my old life. And then I was able to repent enough to get saved. Uh, my, I, so I decided I wasn't going to get married until I was 25. I chose 25 arbitrarily. It was a good uh, good number, and I did not want to do what my mom had done. I wanted to spare myself that. I Mark was actually my fifth proposal. I, wow. Yeah. Back in the old days, not everybody went to college, and a lot of people got married young. I got mm -hmm. married at 19, but starting at 18, I had lots of proposals. You had and five proposals yeah. between... Well, Mark was five. I, mean, I think Mark might have been five. By the time you were 19. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, my I was, When we got <laughs> married, I was almost 20, but 19. Mm -hmm. And I think it was guys seeing the Jesus in me. It, they, they thought they were in love with me, but they were really in love with the Jesus in me. Mm -hmm. And only one of them got saved, and that was Mark. Mark was a seeker. He was looking for the truth. He had been raised a Jehovah's Witness, and he was seeking for the truth. He was going to Young Life in high school. He was trying to find the truth of Christianity, and he wanted to take me out. And I said, well, I don't date. I don't date, and I'm not going to get married for a long time, so there's no use getting your hopes up. And so he started inviting this friend, and I would witness to he and his friend, and Mark got saved. And so then we started, he started working on his faith. We started going to the same church and he got things straightened out that the Jehovah's Witnesses had kind of mixed up. And that provided wonderful fuel later when his mother ended up living with us because his mother was a Jehovah's Witness and I was able to witness to her and she was very ill in our home and I took care of her and I ended up having the presiding elder from Woodburn 
the uh, Jehovah's Witness Church coming to my home once a week, and I'd bake him pies and make him coffee and all of that and entertaining this Jehovah's Witness. So that even proved to be good. So Mark wanted to get married, and I just did not want to get married. Then he met my grandparents, and my grandma and my grandpa both loved him. My mom loved him. That didn't mean as much because my mom loved any man that might marry me. And my grandma and grandpa were looking out for me. And they, my grandpa just thought Mark was a solid stand-up guy. Nothing wrong with him. And my walls of resistance just fell. And we, I, by Christmas, we were engaged. We only knew each other seven or eight months. Mm-hmm. By Christmas, we were engaged, and by March, we were married. We had nothing. We just had what people gave us. Uh, my mom gave us some things, uh, all of our friends. There really weren't big goodwills back then right. so much. But we just had, you know, all the junky things that nobody wanted, and we were just fine with that. So when I met my husband, I was the same way. I said, I am not going to date. I'm not interested in dating. I, and he said, knowing him within two weeks he said i'm not dating you i plan to marry you and i went really like oh okay and so it was so funny because i was so i i'm not gonna do this and so we met around christmas we were engaged in april Uh and we got married in september and we're coming up on 26 years so it's so funny like the lord just he can do that amazing work to just you know, I'm just going to... And when you're sure, you're that. sure. Right. When you're right. sure, you're sure. Uh, so Mark started asking me to... In fact, Mark was afraid to even touch me. He was afraid to even have his elbow touch my elbow. He knew the way that I was. And I was I was really, really afraid. And I'd never had a man in my life except my grandpa. So I didn't exactly know what to do with guys or with men. I had a brother, but he was always gone. And he went off to the Marines the day he turned 18. Mm-hmm. So I really did not know how to deal with men. Mm-hmm. So he asked me if it was okay one day. He asked me if it was okay to hold my hand. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, you can hold my hand. And that was... And he made a bet with his friend. He made a the one who was our third wheel. He made a bet with his friend that he would marry me within a year. I didn't know that till after <laughs> we were married. It probably would have made me angry, but he made a bet with his friend, and we were married. So his intention was marriage from the beginning. Yeah. And the ladies at work, Mark would come in to see me, and the ladies where I worked would say, you better watch out for him. He is head over heels, Thelma. He's crazy about you. And I thought, no, he's just a silly boy with pimples. He's a skinny, tall <laughs> kid, you know. We're not old enough to get married. And they would say things. And it really, it took a while. I think God had to open my eyes and say it was okay. So your plan was to get married at 25. Right. But that didn't happen. No, I got <laughs> married. I was 19. I was four months shy on my 20th birthday. And uh, we're we're very, very glad. Uh, as the end of our courtship, whatever you want to call it, was very difficult for us, even though we only know, knew each other seven or eight months. It, what, once you're in love, there is a kind of a fire that burns. You touch hands, you, uh, as, especially if you experience your first kiss, and you there is a fire that starts growing, and you decide you're going to get married, and the waiting is very, very hard, especially if your mother doesn't care and nobody's even going to know. And that was back in the 70s. So it was very, very difficult, and we ended up, especially because I lived alone until the last few weeks, we used our, the screen door. That was our method of courting. So tell Mark me would stand, about yeah. <laughs> Mark would stand. He didn't want to say goodnight. We, he would pick me up and we'd go to a restaurant and we'd hang out there till they threw us out because the restaurant is safe. He would eat two dinners. I'd eat one. Mark was six foot two, had a 32 inch waist. He weighed 162 pounds. He was just a walking, empty 
uh, stomach waiting to be filled. <laughs> so he would order two dinners. I would order one. And we would just sit and talk for hours at restaurants. Then when he had to take me home, he didn't want to leave. But I didn't want to have him inside my apartment because I lived alone. And we didn't trust ourselves. And so we used a screen door. So he stood on the outside of the screen door. And I stood on the inside of the screen door. And we just would stand there for hours. You know how that is when you're in love, sometimes till one or two in the morning, just talking through the screen door. You'd get your chair on your side and he would sit down on the porch on his side. And wintertime, January and February, that's cold. Uh, I don't think, I know I had chairs, he never had a chair. Yeah. Uh, But that was, that was how we did not cross the lines we didn't want to cross until we got married. It was a boundary. It was a definite boundary. And we needed that. Yeah. We were... We were deeply in love. By the time yeah. we wanted to get married, we wanted to be married. And I believe most young couples are that way. By the time you want to get married, you want to kind of already be married. And so the planning, all of that needs to be as brief as is possible. Short yeah. engagement. And we were just thrilled to be married. And so that's our courtship story. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, Very which good. is really sweet. Very good. Um, I made a list today of things that I regret. And some of these are from before I was a Christian, and mm-hmm. some of these are after I was mm-hmm. a Christian. And the biggest thing on my list is telling my mother, I hate you. Oh, wow. And I said that, I don't know, maybe six, maybe a dozen times when I was not saved, and I would just be angry, and I would say, I hate you. I wish you weren't my mother, and I wish I could go live with my dad. And I know my mom didn't hold that against me, but even now, I'm almost 63, and I even now, I get very emotional when I think that I said that to my mother, who committed her entire life and worked one and a half jobs forever, and committed her life to us. She never, she was married only long enough to have four children. She never went on another date. She never went and had coffee with a man. She never even looked at a man. She felt it would be wrong for her to remarry. Even though she had all types of biblical reasons, she could have. She just felt like she had made her life. And now we were her life and we were her only life. And so I look back at telling her that I hated her. And that would be my advice to young women is don't ever say those words to anybody because you'll never forget it. You'll be 63 years old Mm -hmm. and you'll be getting all upset that when you were 14 and not even saved, that you told your mother you hated her. That's my. That would be my biggest uh, regret. Because it, in the moment, it seemed so right. But to now, in retrospect, and you understand more, so it's... Well, and, and teens live by emotions. Yeah. And if you're living by your emotions, you know, the tongue is an unruly evil. And if you cannot tame your tongue, your whole life is going to be wild. You have to tame your tongue. People right. will remember everything that you yeah. said. Yeah. People remember everything. Yeah. Uh, exaggerating. I had to learn that. Even as a Christian, I still would exaggerate truths. And I had to learn that to, to always tell just the truth, to not make a story bigger. And that probably took me until I was 20 or 23 maybe before I would quit exaggerating things. And it can be a lifelong habit. We all know somebody who does that. Mm -hmm. You never believe everything they say because you know they have embellished it. I Mm. was that person. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal. So if you Mm -hmm. do that, you know, anybody listening, that has, you have to stop. You must tell just the truth the way that it is. You always have to tell the truth. Well, an exaggeration is a distortion. Yes. So you would think that, uh, we are always kind of cautioned to, okay, tell them the full truth. Don't just give them a part of the truth. Give them the full truth. But on the other end of that spectrum is giving them the full truth plus embellishment. Which is a lie. Yeah. Yes, it's actually lying. But I was a liar too. 
before I got saved, I was a liar too. So I think that was my natural person, the natural girl that I had to get under the reign of Christ. And so exaggeration, it is lying because you are saying things that are not true. When you embellish, we soften it. That's a little bit of a euphemism for a lie. But we're lying. When we exaggerate, we are lying. We have to tell only the truth and just the truth. And once you exaggerate something, you end up exaggerating more to cover it up later. Lies, you know, oh, what a tangled web we weave when it once mm -hmm. we when at first we do deceive. That whole thing. Um, all things I regret honoring your parents. That I, not honoring my mom. And so for young women, my message would be honor your parents. You have to honor them. God did not make them your parent because they're perfect. God made them your parents because he chose them for you. We are all rough diamonds with things that ha you have to make it nice. You have to chip pieces away from a diamond. In the rough, it's not beautiful. For God to make us beautiful, he uses our parents. And our parents are there not to make us happy, not to provide for us our every whim. They are there to chip away our rough edges. That's mm -hmm. their job. And they don't have to be perfect to do that, but that's their job. So your mother and your father are the ones God chose. And it is going to hurt. And it's not you're not going to love it. But you need to honor that, that God put them in your life. There is a reason. And if your dad or your mom seem unfair, there's a reason maybe you need someone who is unfair because you need to just accept things from God. There will be a reason. And if you don't learn it as a teenager, you are going to learn it in your marriage. The same problems, the same ugly heads will rise up. So learn it as a teen. And I think um, you're addressing those thoughts to a teenager, but I can think of seeing it from the parenting side because I think sometimes as parents of young ones up through teens, we soften our instruction because we're like, oh, well, I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings or, you know, they're having a hard day and I wouldn't want to over-discipline them and I wouldn't want to, um, you know, we're, we're so concerned as parents in this generation of damaging our children by being harsh that I think sometimes we forget that we do have the authority that God gave us to disciple, to train, to teach our children, both biblically, spiritually, but in the very practical things, yes, like yes. the dishes and the laundry yes. and picking up your room and and voice and our, our words. And I think um, to recognize that from both aspects of being a young person, respecting your parents, and then being a parent to have an expectation that we train our children to Yes. Honor us too. Yes, you spare the rod and you do spoil the child. I know spanking is not popular now, but without spanking, they are going to have to learn everything later on in life the hard way. Uh, and of course, spanking is on the outs now because of child abuse. Right. There are so many parents out there who abuse their children who are looking for an excuse to hit their children. And we know that spanking is not hitting. It's mostly breaking the heart that they displeased you so that they will not want to have your displeasure again. They want to please you. And, and I think there's so many um, creative ways too. I mean, that is one way. And, and I think it is one biblical way to train our children. But um, I know there's a lot of factors in that too yes. for some people, you know, um, to weigh that out. But yeah, I mean, the overall, let's be purposeful 
to train our children because we're not just looking at today and this moment and our emotions. We are training for their future as adults and and truly for generations to come. Yes, yes. And you, of course, should never hit your child with your hand. I had a little narrow wooden spoon and it provided a little bit of a snap, but it could never hurt anybody. And that way you had plenty of time to calm down and we'd go into the kitchen and I'd say, you flushed those Legos down the toilet on purpose, didn't you? Well, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I'm so sorry. Put your hands on the counter. You know that that's two smacks. And they would put their little hands on the counter and they'd get one, two little pops on their rear end. And they would, you'd think you'd beaten them half to death with the tears. But the repentance was there. The true repentance was there. And I think they have to say don't spank now because so many kids have been abused. Or if you have adopted children or if you're fostering, you can't spank those children because most of them have been abused. You're going to have to think of other ways. Uh, the biggest thing, you know, my friend, my friend Sono told me one time, she said, if you yell at your kids, she said, just think, if a teacher in a public school yelled at her kids, they'd be fired. And that was profound to me. That's Sono mm-hmm. Harris. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered if it was. That was quite profound to me to think, oh my goodness, and I was yelling at my kids. Mm. And sometimes it would get ridiculous. Bill was always covering for Zach. Bill was my compliant child who always wanted to do everything to make me happy. And Zach was always challenging me all the time. And Bill would go into Zach's room and pick up his room so that Zach wouldn't get in trouble. And then there I was hollering at Bill, do you want your brother to ever have any friends? Uh, you know, you're going to be the one punished to stay in your room for an hour, Bill. I don't want you picking up his toys. And I, and I started realizing, oh my goodness, this is absolutely absurd. Bill is getting in trouble for trying to cover for his brother and keep him out of trouble. But I think... You know, God God knows, and if we are in prayer every morning on our mm-hmm. knees, it, whether you have a little rug, I always had a little rug, that okay. I was in prayer. And if you have a place for prayer, even if it's just beside your bed, whether it's in a closet or under your uh, apron, uh, like Susanna Wesley, Wesley, yeah. then if you're in prayer, God will help you to be a good mom. The last thing on my regret list is watching TV. Oh, yeah. And I go back. I have a favorite psalm that's 101.3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And that's the filter that we use for television or movies. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. If what you're watching is worthless, if you're studying classical literature and you're watching a documentary on the city of Athens and the history, then obviously that's not worthless. But most things on TV are worthless. In fact, I think most things on TV are changing our kids they are acclimating them to the idea of homosexuality of of that you can change your gender that lying is convenient and or funny they're all or disobeying parents or that children are smarter than parents that's a common theme on television shows and i think a lot of us don't realize that we brought satan right into our homes with the tv i believe the tv needs to be in a place where it's pulled out and you look at it when you choose to look at it but that no one can just go turn it on and mindlessly watch television because it's challenging our very values and i think um Right there, we've got a little bit of a generational thing between you and I, because for you, it was TV. And what I see now, it's, it is, people use their televisions less, and they're on their iPads and laptops and smartphones. Yes. And it's easy to hand off one of those devices to your children, but it's extremely hard to monitor. Yes. And, um... 
those inputs are coming in, you know, the old saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? And so we are the watch keeper of our home, right? We are the gatekeeper of our home to not allow those things. And that goes back to earlier, like authority. You do have authority as your parent. And yes, it may be hard and you may not like it that somebody down the street gets to have their iPad all the time or they right. get they get to watch this or that. But God has put me as the head, my husband and I as the head of our home to establish the rules and our goals for our family might just be different than theirs. And so yes. I think it's really important for parents to remember that that we do have the authority to to do that. And so yes. TV, let's expand that and make it any of the Yes, all electronic devices. That's very true. Um, There's a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman. Okay. We read that in seminary, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he believed that television was going to be the downfall of society. He did, but it's still a very relevant work to read now because all you have to do is apply that to all of those electronic devices because we are amusing ourselves to death. Well, I think actually the the verse you just read, read it one more time for me. It's Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And I think that word worthless is very important because people go, oh, well, it's not that bad. But is it adding of value? Is it, have you ever sat down and written for your family your core beliefs? Is it in alignment with your core beliefs? Yes. And how about this? Would you have been okay if the child went to somebody else's house and you found out later that they watched that thing? Or would that have ruffled your feathers a little bit? So anyway, those are just some thoughts. And you're not present when you're on that device. Think of how often you have gone to a park with your children and all of the other parents are on their phones. They're not watching the child. And think how important that is to the child until they're three or four. Mommy, are you watching? Watch me, Mommy. It's incredibly important for them. And so when I'm with my grandchildren, I turn my phone off. I do not, I don't, unless I'm looking for a message from their mother or something, my phone is off and in my purse because I do not want my grandchildren to to remember grandma that she was always looking at her phone. I don't want to be that person. That communicates an honor and respect for your grandchildren too. Yes. That they are of value and that you want to be spending that time with them. And even though we'd think that they're not, they're too young to understand that, they know. Yes, they (laughs) They do. do. They know. They do. In fact, the other kids at the park will notice that I'm watching and they'll go down the slide and say, do you see me? And I'll say, yes, honey, I do. I say, aren't you awesome? And they're absolute strangers. Right, absolute strangers, but they've recognized there's an old lady here who is actually watching us play. I'm going to go play where she is Mm -hmm. so that I can, so she will look at me too and see how awesome I can go down the slide. Isn't that incredible? That is awesome. And But as a side note, you know, the second thought that that has for me, how much danger children are in when they aren't getting that feedback from their parents because they're actually, if they're seeking it and they're so hungry for it, when you said that, my first, my red flag is, Oh my goodness, I'm so glad that's Grandma Thelma there. They're open to predators. Yes. 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 And the so, parent wouldn't even know. No, they wouldn't even know. And and it's um yeah, there that really is reminding me, you know, yeah, that's very important for so many ways in so many directions. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Incredible. Moving on to once you get married and you're a young wife, 
Isn't Grandma Thelma fun to listen to? I enjoyed having her over so much. I did not want her to stop talking. And so what you just heard is part one. Make sure that next week you come back to hear the rest of the story that she was telling me and all of the good advice and wisdom that she has. I want to just close out this podcast right now in taking a minute to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the older women that have gone before us that have learned life lessons and are willing to share. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be able to reach out and seek a Grandma Thelma in our area, that we could just learn from her, learn the lessons. And Lord, I think another thing that I appreciate and I just love is that you took somebody that maybe even had questionable beginnings and you took her and just got a hold of her life and set her on to grow up in you and to lead her children and now her grandchildren um, in a life that follows you and honors you. So Lord, I just pray that we can look for those women and we can be those women. And thank you so much for Thelma coming on and just sharing her heart with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you've been encouraged or challenged in your faith today and that something we discussed prompts you to grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. If it has, make sure you tell a friend so they can grow along with you. And if you or a friend would like to be a guest and share about God's faithfulness in your life, please email me at podcast at Because when we tell of God's faithfulness, we never run out of stories. Whatever is true Whatever is known